Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Human Behavior Show here on Colin. This episode will be available on Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify. And we have another one to do with relationships, a very popular topic here on the Human Behavior Show. So I'm super excited today to have Dr. Keith today, um, who is a therapist and um, she is a grad of Columbia as well as Harvard. And um, she speaks very intelligently about a lot of different topics when it comes to relationships and therapy. She talks about a lot of different topics in mental health and psychology. But for this episode, we'll be trying to hone in to relationships. So Dr. Kitam, I'm so happy to have you here. Welcome to the show. Please, can you give everyone a bit of your background um, and one welcome? Hi, thank you for having me. Um, new platform. I've never been on this platform, but as always, you know, excited to share my knowledge. A little bit about me. I am a former international consultant that turned therapist, um, primarily to figure out myself. But then I realized, you know, it shouldn't be this difficult to figure out yourself. And I started using a lot of the knowledge I learned from different industries, from psychology, from science, from spirituality, from uh, leadership and notice that you know that mental health really is an integration of total health and i've noticed a huge difference in my clients when i use a lot of evidence-based um sort of more neuroscience to actually help explain what's going on inside of our nervous system and so i'm just really passionate about really destigmatizing mental health and providing a lot more science to support it and of course relationships impact our entire health <laughs> and so you know that's what initially got me into this space wanting to understand myself and wanting to understand, you know, why am I attracted to certain types of people that were not so healthy for me? Yeah. Dr. Kitam is really interesting because I, before um, we, 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 um, you know, did our, did our last show, um, you did an exercise with me to kind of make me really understand where you're coming from. And you were like, so hey, you'll be, you'll be wild from this. And the exercise we did on looking at childhood and looking at, you know, what we go for and what we're interested in and, um, you know, our, our, our subconscious is, is attracted to was super, super interesting. And, um, you talk a lot of different subjects, but that exercise in particular really kind of struck out to me because I was wowed because it, it did work. And the things I was going for was very consistent with the exercise. So I think to start this episode on form, I know we could talk about a lot of different things. I want to start off with childhood. So relationships, as you pointed out, are very important in terms of for our mental health, longevity, stress levels. And that's why I've been working on an app called Amelie because I think um, having a healthy relationship um, goes a long way to live a happier life. So please inform us about the exercise you did with me and why our childhood is so important in our relationships. So the exercise was uh, founded by a guy named uh, Dr. Harville Hendricks. And I actually first saw him on Oprah and I hate to even say the year because it will just kind of give it a sign of how old I am, but it was like in 2000, okay, so 22 years ago. And he was a psychologist that was going, was considered the country's best relationship therapist, but was going through his own divorce and wanted to kind of really figure out like, I'm here, I am helping people get heal their relationships or work on them, but I'm going through a divorce. So there's something I'm not figuring out. And what's really interesting about the, sorry, the exercise that I do, Dr. Sahib, that why it resonated is that me telling you those things, so me asking you about your family or about, you know, what your childhood frustrations were, and then like literally pointing out all the things that you're attracted to myself, 
it would never resonate. But because the exercise literally, I call it a back door into your psyche. And a lot of times people are like, well, I don't remember, you know, what happened to me in childhood or growing up. And I said, that's fine. Let's just, you know, we're not here to blame your mom and dad, but we kind of go through some character traits of your parents. And what's nice about the exercise is it takes you through like different character traits of your parents, but then also your childhood frustrations. And that's what's really fascinating is because most of us think that we are in control of our life and that we're choosing to respond to things in different ways. But what we don't realize is how we respond to things in childhood continues into how we respond to things in adulthood. So I'll give an example. If in in childhood you were frustrated or upset by your parents being very strict or not allowing you to stay late and you realized, okay, I don't have a voice fighting with them. I think I'd get anywhere. So you just run off to your room and sulk. In adulthood, when you are in a relationship, the way you handle frustrations will mirror exactly what you did in childhood. It's an unconscious process. And I have done this exercise over a thousand times and every single time from the most sophisticated person to, you know, your average person who's like 18, 19, they are always surprised how that consistency is still there because often they're thinking that, well, either this is just me or that they're choosing to respond that way, not realizing that it was an unconscious, you know, process or a subconscious process that was learned in childhood. So they call it adapt- adaptations. And, you know, Carl Jung said it that until you make the unconscious conscious, it'll continue to control your life. So the what happens after you do this exercise, I always tell someone like, you know, waking up is hard to do because sometimes ignorance is bliss. But once you become aware of how you, you are acting in adulthood mirrors a lot of your childhood things, you it's, it's, you know, the, the blinders are off. And now you're like left like, what do I do with this? Like, oh, my God. And, you know, and that's, that's called consciousness. And once you awaken, that's when you start this process of self discovery and growing. So it's really just kind of like I call it the gateway or the doorway into and I feel that's what happened with you, um, so which is why it resonated so much. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, I think I think I learned the most about myself in that, that series of two or three sessions that and you gave me those exercises. So that's super interesting. So it must be something that happens in our brain, um, you know, biologically development that stays with us. And, and those are the things that, you know, we look for in our relationships as well. So Dr. Kitam, with that piece of information, so understanding yourself seems to be key when you're getting into a relationship, but that doesn't necessarily mean the things you're going for are healthy. So how do you <laughs> stop those biases? How do you know what you should be going for? So, I mean, I'm always, the other question that I was always fascinated by is like, wh- you know, why am I attracted to one person versus another person? And they might have two, two individuals with the same resume, okay, in terms of accomplishments, achievements, et cetera. But for some reason, that chemistry um, that I, ha- I have with one person, it doesn't exist with the other. And that was another thing that, you know, so when we did in that exercise, those negative character traits, what, what the research has found is that unless you notice certain let me write, you know, certain negative traits that you had in childhood. So like, for example, with myself, my father was a traditional Middle Eastern man, which was when he said something, that was it. It was not open for discussion. So not being heard is a developmental wound for me. So someone that gave me a lot of attention, maybe not necessarily, you know, in the best way, but it was any attention, was someone that would kick off that neuroamphetamine and that oxytocin, which leads to those feel good, you know, butterfly feelings in your stomach. And what ends up happening is it literally impairs your judgment because as long as you're getting that attention, all the other negative stuff you are literally blind to. And that was 
mind boggling to me. Like literally, are you, you're basically on a drug. One of those things that you, you don't even realize until you start kind of looking inside. And I call it, you know, a lot of people talk, you use different terminology. I call you think of it as like the inner journey. But to me, it's this constant state of looking inside because unless you look inside to really constantly question yourself, you can't even understand what is it that you're attracted to. And it's so easy for us to kind of preach things or people will tell you someone's unhealthy, but it doesn't matter because you're not actually addressing, I call it the drug-like feeling, is that if someone's being impaired because of their hormones, no matter what you say to them, it's not going to actually resonate nor get through. And that's why a lot of times people are like, well, you know, just don't even bother giving someone advice because they're going to have to learn the hard way. And it's unfortunate, <laughs> but it's unfortunate, you know, and that's where it's like, there's no coming to consciousness without pain. That's another question I've asked. Like, does it really take, you know, your heart to be broken or do something bad for you to kind of finally wake up? And, you know, unless someone has figured that one out, let me know. But I have yet to <laughs> find that. I think that's a difficult one. Um, so we have this kind of drug-like addiction to certain things that may not be best for us, but we have to negate it and learn the hard way or, uh, we ask the right questions. So in terms of asking questions, when you get into a relationship and you're thinking of a long-term relationship, like a marriage, um, how important is it to be asking a lot of questions? Yeah. So the, so the, you know, questions is data and data keeps you above the neck. Okay. And that can, it's good because you can kind of clarify certain things, but it's not necessarily going to guarantee you a healthy relationship. And the reason being is that, the lived experience and in terms of emotions and psychology is below the neck. And, you know, they call it bottom up versus top down. So a lot of, you know, society talks to you about this top down process where you're getting data and information and information and information. But at the end of the day, people say one thing, but their actions and their behavior is quite different. And actions and behavior is often influenced by emotions and emotions are in the body. So this is where it gets a little tricky because when it comes to love, you know, logic goes out the window. <laughs> and, then, you know, the only person that can trigger you is someone that you're actually attracted to. And so things that you wouldn't normally do in non-relationship, you would actually do in a relationship. And it's so, I'm just, you know, I always like examples because it kind of takes this theory stuff and makes it more simple. Um, so for example, in terms of one is once you become aware, or right, what are the unhealthy traits is that one, notice them, but then two, Make sure that there's, you're going to still be always be attracted to them, but two, make sure that there's enough positive to offset it. Now, it's better to pay attention to people's behavior because a lot of times when we're asking questions, you know, and I've had clients tell me like they will get, the, they will get phenomenal responses that just like, you're, you know, that makes your heart just think like, wow, I found the right person. But often what's more important is pay attention to the behavior. You know, and it's like, for example, someone will say, oh, you know, I really want someone who's religious and they actually will say that. And then they'll start asking the person about you know, their life and are they, do they pray? Do they do these things? And that person responds and becomes that person. But and it's dangerous because you're not really doing a true evaluation of observation. So, you know, to answer your question, I feel like, yes, it's important to ask certain questions. And then as the relationship progresses, you, you know, but at the same time, I would say a better um, sign is actually behavior. We don't pay attention to behavior enough. I think that's a great point. <laughs> you, you've talked about observation rather than just because people can mold themselves. They really want something. I mean, how oh, many times absolutely. for a job job interview, right? <laughs> we try and well, no, and, I, the job. and I was guilty of that. Like, for example, you know, I really wanted someone, you know, Muslim, so I didn't want somebody who drank, but at the same time, I wanted them open minded and modern, and I wanted them to pray. So I kind of like the one of the best of both worlds. So the guys that I met, guess what? 
they they you know they live that part and what i learned later learned it was more just to kind of i don't want to say the lure and we would have been manipulative because they became who i kind of told them i wanted and i didn't really get to know who they really were until later on so that you know so that was also and then that's one thing that science then validated to me i'm like oh makes sense you know because you know and then freud said it bet people don't remember you know people don't sometimes understand their emotions but they'll act them out and you know it all goes back to attachment wounding right so the best thing i always tell people is when things are good that's not an evaluation of the relationship it's actually when you argue how does how does each person respond because that resume and those looks goes completely out the window if you're arguing and that person is not good hearted they're not forgiving they're not willing to discuss things they're not willing to compromise i mean a true test of someone's character doesn't come from that question asking it's from when the conflict happens how do they actually what happens and that's to me is more important than anything and it's one thing that i learned later on in life is that you know yeah we all want this you know great resume but if when you you know are in a conflict situation and are arguing if that person is not good hearted is not kind is not communicative everything else is is mute at that point have you so experienced don't... anything like that yeah, 100%. <laughs> I think I've realized as well. It's, it's, it's not only important to see kind of, you know, the positives, but also realize when things are tough, how someone is. And, uh, you know, I think someone who's very reactive and belligerent it can, can be difficult to get on with. And it's funny because our five uh, personality tests that we do for Amelie, um, neuroticism is one that if high can end up being a red flag. So on that same note, Dr. Kitam, conflict resolution. What do you think are some of the red flags and, and how someone is in conflict? Is it shouting? Is it anger? Is it impulsiveness? What are some of the traits you should be looking at? Well, you should be avoiding. Yeah. The, the hardest couple, whether they're married or not, for me to kind of ever work with is emotional disengagement. So no conflict is actually unhealthy. And then people get surprised by that. I'm like, yeah, because you don't, ha- you need emotion to work on things. And I always tell people that conflict is, is there because it's growth needs to happen. So you'll keep having the same argument over and over if you're not growing. So what I say is that the red flags are if you're not able to discuss things and it leads into a lot of criticism and, and blaming, shaming and attacking. So, you know, John Gottman, who, you know, I'm certified in different relationship therapies. And one of them is John Gottman. And he kind of, he's distilled the four horsemen, which he calls, you know, criticism. And he also calls it the harsh startup. So how a conversation starts is generally 95% of the time how it's how it ends. So if it starts aggressive, it's going to end aggressive. If it starts curious, it's going to end curious, most likely, hopefully. So criticism is one. Number two is um, someone who gets very defensive, who does not take responsibility because the antidote for defensiveness is taking responsibility. So, you know, one of the examples that, I, that I've given in some of the workshops that I teach is someone starts off with like, you always work, you never take, spend time for me, you know, you don't care about me, anyone else, you just care about your job. And one response to that is like, oh my God, here we go again. Who do you think pays for all this? It's a very defensive response that gets basically becomes hostile and that conversation ends ugly. Whereas, you know, if the part one partner is like, we always work, we never have time together, we never do anything. And the other partner responds in a more um, accepting responsibility saying, you know what, you're right. I'm, you know, I'm sorry, what's wrong? And kind of leans in and becomes more curious of, okay, what can we do about this as opposed to attacking? And a lot of what I've realized is that there is a science to being in a relationship and we're never taught that. So, you know, it's 
if you don't know these things, and a lot of times none of us know these things, is that, okay, if you notice that you're doing criticism or you're getting defensiveness or the, the, the one that's often called stonewalling where you just walk away from that person completely go radial silence, um, you can, you know, recognize the signs and then actually try to get help to rectify them. Uh, and then the fourth one that he talks about, so there's, sorry, going back to criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling, and the fourth one, which is actually the worst, is contempt. And contempt really is, is more about the nonverbals, the eye rolling. It's that complete dismissive disrespect where it's just the I'm better than thou. So those are the things that I would say, look, you know, at the bare minimum, start looking out for. And it comes back to, is this, you know, and in a simple terms, are they willing to work on the conflict or are they just going to blame and shame and either you kind of give in and, you know, um, come back and, and basically accept responsibility, you know, where they just try to make you feel like you're the wrong one and they're the right one, or are they willing to kind of sit down and talk about it and come to a happy medium? So does that answer your question? That's is <laughs> excellently, actually. It makes me think there's a lot of people who have kind of, um, come to us in Sweden, Amelie, and talked about narcissism as well as emotional manipulation, especially women who felt that from from a lot of men. Um, do you think that's something that's on the rise? Is that something that we just weren't that aware of before? Um, why do you think people get into, I mean, relationships where they don't realize someone is a narcissist and they don't realize the emotional manipulation until it's too late almost? Yeah. And so the word narcissism is, we all have narcissistic traits. And so, you know, I've been trained by some of the best. And literally, I mean, so one of the guys is uh, Dr. Bessel Vanderklok, who's a trauma specialist. And I, we literally, I had a, so I've been doing a trauma, intense trauma training with him. And one of the things I had asked him about a couple of clients that I have who literally qualify under narcissistic personality disorder. And he basically just stopped me and he said, we need to stop using this title because what's happened is people are just labeling it without really, it doesn't do anything. And so what's more important is to figure out the symptoms of that narcissism, because if you're attracted to that, you know, it's funny because we just shame that person and say, okay, we need to leave, but there's something within you that's being attracted to that. So I actually always tell people like, instead of, you know, seeing that as a red flag or running, it's just actually be curious of like, okay, why am I attracted to this? And then figure out, what is it that I need that I'm not getting from this person? And often it's a very it's a, it's a very fine balance between just looking outside and, and pointing out what's wrong with that other person, which is also very difficult if you don't know what your needs are. The one thing that I have actually been surprised by as a therapist working with individuals is I've been, you know, doctors, lawyers, very sophisticated people that when it comes to relationships, how very few of us really know what we need. And so even if they're in an unhealthy relationship with someone who might have narcissistic traits, they can't get unstuck because they don't even understand what they need. And that's my, you know, so we'll spend like sometimes three months unpacking what, you know, what they need, because that word sounds so easy. But when you actually, when you break it down, like if I were to ask you, actually, what do you need in a relationship? Could you kind of clearly articulate other, anything that's not on a resume, you know, I'm assuming that you can, because you've been <laughs> interviewing so many people around this and reflecting <laughs> on the topic. But, you know, it's, it's it's often a very foreign concept. They're like, well, you know, I need someone who knows how to communicate, who's respect. Okay, break that down further because we give general titles. So to your question, and, you know, I'm kind of going off a tangent here, is that there are, you cannot see the red flags if you haven't done the inner work. So it's kind of, it's a little tricky because we're going back to those that unconscious attraction. And, you know, someone like myself, who I say I was probably in the past attracted to someone who has narcissistic traits. But guess what? I didn't see it because that drug, remember, I was like, you know, love is blind or I was drugged. 
where as long as they gave me some attention, even though I knew like so many other people wanted them, but they were giving me attention. And even though if it wasn't consistent or repetitive or um, loyal, it didn't, I couldn't even see it because I was just content with that, you know, them giving me their attention or them claiming that they wanted to be with me. So does that make sense? So that's what I'm saying is that until only yeah, when that, I that's... did my, you know, did my work, could I start seeing that? That absolutely makes sense. I mean, so doing your own work and then you can kind of see the, the, the others as well. So with that, so you talk, you, I remember we had a discussion and you said uh, how therapy is important, especially people who've been through trauma or, you know, past relationships or, um, you know, I mean, for everyone, I think at some point therapy is, is something that we should all look to do. Um, how essential do you think it is before you get into a marriage? So, I, I mean, I, I feel that this stuff needs to be taught in elementary school, learning about yourself. I mean, it shouldn't, we never learn about ourselves. And what the mind boggling thing is, is that when your late relationships aren't right, it literally impacts all areas of your life. You know, I've seen people, you know, run multi-billion dollar corporations, but when the relationship is not right, guess what? It impacts their health. It impacts their financial wealth. It impacts every single area. So I think it's absolutely critical. And just as important as learning how to read and write or drive a car or do math. And, you know, whether it's going through therapy, you know, the good news is now a lot of this self-help stuff is at your fingertips. Is that anything that gets you to learn about yourself, especially about, you know, the, it literally starts in attachment, attachment wounding. So understanding your attachment style, learning, you know, why you are attracted because there's different attachment styles. You know, are you a secure attachment? Are you insecure attachment? If you're insecure attachment, is it anxious? Is it avoidant? And then there's different variations of it. But just start, I would, you know, the first thing people are like, well, where did I start? I said, look at your relationships. So start understanding yourself. How was your relationship with your parents growing up? How was your relationship with your siblings growing up? Your extended family, your friends. So then from that, you can start kind of professional help and guide. Yes, absolutely. So in terms of, I, I think it's just 100% so critical and something that all of us should do. It's not, it's not a luxury. It's a necessity. So it's, it's something that you should look for in your partner when, before you get with them. So anyone in the audience who has any questions and on a there as well, you can call in. So call in has this feature where you can, um, um, press the call in button and we can take your question live here with Dr. Kitam in the podcast as well. So feel free. You can also use the chat and ask the question there as well. We'll keep checking that. So Dr. Kitam, if two people are stuck on a principle or, um, you know, they're disagreeing, how do you come to a compromise or how do you, um, work that out? What is the way or, <laughs> cause, cause that's, Often what happens is that neither side budges. And, and one is because they can't see the logic of the other person. But two also is ego. Relationships have a lot of ego. And people feel that if they let this one go, then the other person will keep saying that, okay, I was wrong that time, so I'll be wrong again, etc. Yeah, that's a great question. So Rumi said it best. It's that the ego is the veil between humans and God. It's a veil that keeps you between humans and God. And the thing with you know, conflict is that, especially in relationships, is that what the research finds is that sometimes 60, and I don't know exactly how they got 63%, but 63% of problems, they call them perpetual problems, that basically you can't really solve. So there's, you know, they, and the, the, the other 37% you can. Now, what I've noticed is basically I say pick your battles. And then number two is that you have to understand each other's value system. So for example, uh, finances is something that couples often fight about. 
And if someone grew up poor and the other one grew up comfortable, that will be a tension point throughout the relationship. That's something that they're going to have ongoing conflict about. And it's going to be very difficult to change that because each person's value system is coming into that relationship. So how one person sees money is just hardwired in them because of their growing up or if they struggle to pay rent and have food on the table, they're always going to be a bit more calculated and cautious with money, even if they have the means. Whereas the other person never had to worry about that. So they're not, they're not going to be as calculated and cautious and they might be more frivolous with money. So that becomes an ongoing tension point in that relationship. And I've seen this continuously. And all, what with educating both of these individuals about their different value systems, for example, in this case, around finances, they've learned to actually start accepting the differences, not necessarily agreeing with it, but in the sense of like, pick your battles, it's just one battle that you're never going to win. You know, because they can't ever look at that finances from their worldview because they never struggled with money. Or if the person didn't, you know, did not struggle with money, it's hard for them to kind of see why the other person, they can try to understand. And, you know, at best you come to some type of happy medium, but you're never going to really have true, um, you know, eye to eye on that topic. Does that make sense? Yep, I would agree completely. And, and, and on that same tune, um, so what would you think is psychologically damaging in a relationship or, or should you agree on certain areas that a couple should never go or discuss? For example, maybe a past situation or, you know, maybe um, something personal about someone, uh, maybe calling a partner stingy, things like that. Are there certain boundaries that should be established uh, before a marriage, for example, that you should agree on that, hey, let's even if we're fighting, let's not go there? <laughs> See, in, in principle yes but it, what happens when we get triggered you know i call it the front part of your brain literally gets shut off and that the front part of your brain is the mature side of your brain right you know little children up until the age of seven don't have you know they call them the higher brain waves so they're in that imaginary world so when we get triggered and we're arguing that logical part of our brain goes out the window so assuming that part of your brain stays online and you can be logical and rational yes you shouldn't the name any name calling i mean do you know anyone that sits there and criticizes your own friend that they <laughs> criticize you do you want to be around them no <laughs> you know and in terms of you know what you share what you what you don't go to i mean i also follow certain islamic principles because i am muslim where it's like even like past relationships i mean islam's about it's basically anything that someone's going, going to use against you to judge you there's no need now there's and especially if it happened before you knew that person um that's the the rule of thumb that i that's my personal rule based on what i've learned from scholars now some people differ and feel like no they feel they have the right to know about everything but i and then i say how does it change the present like other than giving you information to judge that person by and judgment is another unhealthy situation that's it's hard not to we all have biases right so when you find out certain information, you start using that bias. And that's another red flag, by the way. I always tell people, do not compete with someone's internal bias. So, for example, if they have an internal bias of, you know, it's a cultural thing, right, that they don't want to marry someone that was divorced. So, you know, I've had people that are been hanging out in a relationship for two, three years and trying to kind of get over that bias. And unfortunately, it, it, they have, weren't able to. And so... It's learning to understand what, what is that person's internal bias because an internal bias is once again comes from a value system so you know these are just little things where i say you know to answer your question is that one do not criticize do not attack each other but then two also be careful with what you're divulging because if it's used against you then it's an also an insight of someone's internal judgment and bias 
that you actually have to kind of be, you know, careful for. And the, and one other thing too, is that for some reason we're not perfect, but we expect our partner to be perfect. And I always find that fascinating. It's like <laughs> what we, what applies to the other person doesn't apply to ourselves. Absolutely. <laughs> it's that, um, it's a bias there as well. I think you see others from a different lens than you see yourself, uh, more forgiving towards yourself. I think that's how people are. So Dr. Kitam, in, in the digital age, meeting people, um, a lot of it's happening online now. And you know, I have my app as well, my startup. Um, with an endless amount of options that the digital world presents itself, we're always thinking there's a better option out there, be it in terms of, you know, personality, looks, status, wealth, um, you know, attractiveness. I mean, you know, so many different variables. There's always uh, someone that could potentially be a better fit. How do you think about that in terms of, you know, modern matchmaking, um, finding that right person? Um, do you think we should try and get to know as many people as possible um, to have an idea of what we're looking for? Or should we sit down and make a list of what traits are important to us and, and prioritize those? Well, that's a loaded question and a hard one because I have two thoughts in my head, two polarizing thoughts in my head. One of them is, hadith that talks you know the prophet used to give which is basically said for every 100 camels you'll barely find one suitable to ride like he said people are like camels for every 100 you can barely find one suitable to ride so then i would say like okay unless you've gone through 100 people consider yourself you haven't but then the <laughs> other the other side of it was an article i found in the wall street journal which talked about the the crisis of choice and how it's actually made things 10 times more difficult for us to be content. And uh, the example they gave was about ice cream, right? Where they gave one group of people three flavors, vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry. And then they went back and asked how many of you were satisfied with your choice? And it by, you know, 90% said they were very content and happy with their choice of ice cream. Then they gave another group, you know, t uh, 12 flavors of ice cream. And they went back and asked them, okay, how many of you were content with the flavor of ice cream you chose? And they said, 33% were content. So, the, the, you know, choice. And, and the other thing is, too, is that in the United States, there's something here called Costco, which is like a major wholesaler. And when you go into Costco, you can only pick, like they have ketchup. They only have one size of ketchup, one brand of ketchup, because they just remove the decision-making for the person. And I think one of the things that the online world, while it's giving people access to individuals around the world they never would have had access to, that the sometimes too much choice can actually cause a lot of confusion so i say make your list understand it and then try to get to know a couple of people at a time and if you can meet them in person great before you start kind of working the field and going from one to another as opposed to just you know i i've talked to different clients some of my clients will just talk to multiple people all at once because then they find they don't get attached to one specific person but then i've also seen the issues of that and then i have some clients that just do one one by one. So they'll just do focus on one person. And then that also causes a different attachment issue. So <laughs> it really is, it's not a one size fits all, but I say, you know, fewer choice, but I'd say, yes, you want to have, give a couple of people a chance to have, be clear on what you want. And then I tell people also though, sometimes the best way to learn about yourself is by putting yourself out there. And I'm a big, you know, fan of, or believe in destiny. So yes, do your part, understand yourself, learn about yourself, put yourself out there, but also learn from each experience. And what ends up happening is what I see a lot of clients might do is that they're intense. They go on these apps and they will, you know, meet multiple guys for two, three months, four months, and then, you know, get disappointed several times. And then they're like, that's it. It's like a binge. And then they stop and cut off for like a year or two. 
and then they kind of get the courage and, and come back on it. So, you know, I'd say something that's a bit healthier is if you do a little bit more sustainable and where you don't kind of have this heightened expectation and then it's like this crash. So, you know, so you want something more of the middle ground where be clear on what your expectations are or what you're looking for somewhat. And if you're not sure, okay, go out there. Um, the, what leads to disappointment is expectations. Try not to have expectations. Look at it as an, you know, I say a laboratory for growth. And if, as long as you're seeing it as a laboratory for growth about learning about yourself, then you're looking at, it's called, you know, post-traumatic growth in a way, because you're not looking at it as a failure or something that didn't work out. You're looking, okay, this is how I'm actually learning about myself. And that I've seen to be a healthier with a lot of my clients because now they they don't get discouraged when they go out and after a date with someone or they don't talk, you know, they talk to someone for two, three months and then they meet in person and it doesn't work out. They're not as disappointed because they're trying to see, okay, what have I gained from this? How can I learn? What have I learned about myself? What can I pay attention to sooner that I won't do again? So one of my clients said after, he's learned after three weeks, he has to see that person. If they're not physically in the same area, they have to see, he has to see that person after three weeks because Otherwise, you know, you start getting emotionally attracted and attached and you're not even really sure because you haven't really seen them. So they just put that as a golden rule. So does that answer your I love how, I love how you've given the example because it shows how uh, inextricably linked behavioral psychology and decision making is with the choice, the ice cream example you were giving with relationships. And that's why I find... I, I never thought I'd find relationships interesting, but this year, um, apart from kind of the the interest in looking at, you know, relationships and health and how they play a role in mental health, even the why we make the choices we do, the psychology behind it is super fascinating. That's why I got interested in it. We do have a call from Anam. So Anam, I'm going to go to you. Uh, you can unmute and ask your questions to Dr. Gitam. I think while she works to unmute, I was wait for her to unmute. But what happens, uh, Dr. Kita, finally, I'd have a question as we round up as well. Um, so we've heard a lot about, you know, relationships in the media. Will Smith, for example, uh, Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, a big high-profile case as well. And a lot of people are reiterating that who you marry is a big, big, major key decision and impacts your life. And you, you said that earlier as well. So... The, do you think your relationships can be the key to happiness or do you think happiness is intrinsically set and we can make the most of a situation um, or does it really come down to um, the choices we make? <laughs> a hard question. <laughs> you, no, no, no. Your relationship can be a key to your misery. That's for sure. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we look at it as, so here's the thing is that we all have an internal, and this is also from Daniel Gilbert, one of my professors at Harvard, who's talking about, he wrote the book, Stumbling on Happiness. And I love it because he, you know, linked the whole science to, we all have an internal set point for happiness. So in the beginning, our relationship is the source of our happiness and that honeymoon phase where it's euphoric and you're doing all this new things together. But over time, it eventually reaches, you know, a different setting point. And what the researchers in science has found is that Yes, initially it is a burst of happiness over time in terms of sustainable. The, the other 80, I'd say 80, 20 changes from in the beginning, it's 80% your relationship, 20% yourself. It flips once you get into a healthier, more secure attachment relationship where it literally needs to be 80% from you, 20% from your partner, assuming that it's a somewhat stable relationship and it's not truly toxic. And what I mean by that is that the healthiest relationships that I've seen both with my clients and even my own that I've, you know, I've been married for nine years and I keep learning myself, my husband and I keep learning is that we're two independent individuals who come together, but we each continue to feed our own buckets as well as we, as we feed our, 
you know, like our together relationship, but individually we are responsible kind of for coming in, in terms of feeling more whole. And what I've noticed is that I'm happier and he's happier. And we, we contribute to each other, each other's happiness as opposed to being dependent on the other person. And that was something I also learned because in the beginning of my marriage, it wasn't like that. I grew up in a very traditional mindset where maybe I was a bit more dependent on my husband to kind of be my source of happiness. And then I, you know, thanks to, you know, constantly learning as I really, I realize that once again, that my own career path, my own purpose, my own passion is my, you know, my responsibility and him supporting it, him encouraging me help, but he can't be that primary source. He, he, he doesn't have that power, even if I, you know, even if he wanted to. And then that was, that's actually liberating. And I think one of the things that the pitfalls is that in the Middle Eastern culture, a lot of us, there goes with a huge expectations for this other person to make you happy. And that's why the divorce rate has also gotten happier, or so happier, not higher, is because people have these high expectations in the relationship and then they're just perpetually disappointed. And so that's where, you know, so to answer, you know, long-winded, the long-winded answer to your question, but each person needs to realize that 80% of the work comes from within themselves and finding out what makes fulfills their life and your partner over time can only contribute 20%. No, I love the personal insight there as well. And I like the term, I call it relationship fitness, how you work on yourself to become a better partner continuously. Like you do physical fitness, emotional fitness, and uh, that's something we're trying to achieve with Amelie. So Dr. Kitam, it's been absolutely brilliant having you here on the podcast and thanks i know you're tuning in from sunny florida <laughs> so <laughs> taking you away from your vacation but i had to get you on on this season because i think you're a brilliant really intelligent speaker and before you go i want to know uh, what is your mission with everything you do and how can people follow you where can they follow you where can they find you and how can they book a consultation with you i mean i would definitely recommend dr kitama uh, as someone to have a session with i mean that session i had uh, was absolutely brilliant Thank you. Thank you. So, I mean, for me, you know, I don't see this as a career. I actually literally see it as my life work. And I'm just passionate about destigmatizing mental health and using evidence um, based, you know, using science and other disciplines to actually show people what's really going on and that this is, you know, mental health is total health and it's not a luxury, it's a necessity for our well being. And, you know, you can follow me on Instagram at BrainHealthDoc or on my website if you want to get in, uh, in touch for a consult. It's uh, the website is BrainHealthGrowth.com. So either through Instagram. I mean, in terms of get a hold of me on the website, BrainHealthGrowth.com, you can fill out a form there. And then my assistant usually will get back to you about that. In terms of just following, in terms of I continuously share uh, content is on Instagram under BrainHealthDoc. And, you know, this is just, like I said, a, a passion of mine. So I'm always, <laughs> you know, happy to talk about this. I can go on and on. No, you sound very passionate. That's why I love having you. I know you're super busy, but I'm going to definitely have you on for a few trips. So I want to kind of really focus on this one, relationships, but there's so much more we could talk about. And especially with the, the people you've worked with at Harvard and Columbia as well, some of the top institutions and, and what you continue to do with your own work and research. Um, I think there's so much I need to be speaking to you about. Um, so definitely to get you on more frequently. Um, and this was an absolutely fantastic episode. And if we didn't get to anyone's calls or questions, I'm sorry for that. Um, you, I'll give you like a few seconds to ask now on them if, if you want to. Otherwise, this podcast will be available straight away on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can give it a listen. We'll be sharing on the Amli page as well. Um, and really appreciate Dr. Kitam for giving up her time and sharing her knowledge here. So please do follow her. And Dr. Kitam, I will touch base with you soon. 
really nice to see you catch everyone at the next episode all right thank you thank you bye